huge news, years in the making, my brand new book that my publishers refuse to publish, Money Matrix. Beat the money system and build generational wealth. Understand the three main ways that the banks productize you and make money from you. You'll be able to turn that system against itself, build generational wealth and multiple streams of recurring income. It's all at moneymatrix.cash. And if you're quick, the first few hundred registrants and buyers will receive many special bonuses from me. The brand new Moneymaker Summit three-day special event. Meet me at a champagne reception. Meet me at a multi-millionaire networking dinner. Go now, moneymatrix.cash. This is huge. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. This is Rob Moore here with Hiring and Recruiting Legends Part 2. If you haven't listened to Part 1 yet, go back and listen to that first, get the context. We covered in Part 1 the single biggest factor of scale and leverage. We covered how to hire first, fast, quickly, even if you're a one-man band. We covered how to bridge between being a one-man band and getting those first few hires and how to reduce risk and cost and who those first two or three hires should be. We covered the employment contract, how to get one, how it should be, how to build it as you go. We covered job descriptions, minimum standards of performance. So here we are then with part two, hiring and recruiting legends. So just to set the scene again, I genuinely believe that the single biggest factor of scale and leverage is the power team you build. If you want something done well, do it yourself. If you want something done better, get someone better to do it for you. So most small business owners, entrepreneurs, they're working too hard to be rich. They're too operational to be strategic and make a big difference. And so if you really want to be able to work less but get more and you want to be able to do more of what you love, merge your passion profession, you really need a team. Now, I did cover on the last podcast some of the reasons why people don't want to build a team. Maybe they think they don't want to be an HR department. They don't want to manage people. You know, they think that they can't risk having the overhead and the cost. And in part one, hopefully I did enough to convince you that you just need to get over that. Because how many huge organizations do you see with no staff? How many people that change the world and are the the leaders like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Arnold Schwarzenegger or whoever? How many of them do you find with no staff and just a laptop? Now, you may not want to be that scale, but at the very least, you want a good PA, you want a good ops manager, maybe an MD, you want some outsourcers. So then, next thing you do, I believe, to really get started is to try and get as low a basic salary as possible and as high a commission as possible and do not limit the upside. Now, not everyone's going to come to work for you if you pay very low salaries, And at the moment, although it could change depending on when you're listening to this, we are more in an employee's market than an employer's market. So salaries are pretty strong at the moment. That'll that'll ebb and flow with, you know, the economic climate that we're in. But if you want to de-risk hiring staff, then what you do is you reduce the basic as as much as you can, as much as, uh, you know, the, the incoming person would accept. 
and you give them higher commission, but you don't limit the upside. Because if you limit the upside, then really you're just paying a, a salary, but you're de-risking it. Whereas if you give, if you offset the fact that you're reducing their salary, because if they're getting a smaller salary than they could get somewhere else, there's got to be a trade-off, an exchange for that. So that exchange might be that they love the culture. It might be that they've got autonomy and you know they have more freedom in their role. Maybe they can work from home. It might be that they are in a leadership or a managerial position. Now, by the way, salary is not always the top reason why people will come and work for you. So what is it you're giving them in exchange for a lower salary? And in fact, if you give them all of those, if you give them autonomy, freedom, a great culture and a leadership or a managerial position, they probably will take a lower salary compared to other roles. So then it's when, when the commission kicks in. So as many people as you can in a department or in the company, you want to give them a, an upside on remuneration. Now, not every role is commission-based and some roles may be more administrative or more maybe financial or operational. They're not really motivated by huge commissions, so they, they would want a, a reasonable amount of salary covered. But in my experience, no one ever turns down a nice bonus and no one ever turns down a bit of commission. So... Maybe, for example, you might reduce the salary by 20%, but you might make the upside an on-target estimate that they might be able to have 150% of the equivalent salary in that year, something like that. Now, I'm going to kind of counter my own argument here because I'm giving you some strategies to get started. But one thing that in my companies we've changed over time is scrimping on salaries. So in the early days, we'd really try and keep the overhead lean by having salaries very low. But the problem with that is you can attract the, the lower quality and companies that are paying good salaries are good adverts to headhunters or recruitment consultants. And what you might find is you never even see the great talent because the great talent are getting attracted to higher salaries in your, com- your competition. And you may be by default losing out. So you could look at it another way here, especially in a non-sales role. If you pay, say, 10 to 20% more, you could get a team member that's 400% better. Now, of course, paying higher salary is no guarantee that you immediately get the best of the best, the cream of the crop. Of course, you've got to make sure your recruitment process is good, your onboarding process is good, and your culture is good. Otherwise, you could ruin someone. But in my experience, when you compare someone that wasn't good with someone that was, they're often not just 20% better, they're often 200 or 400% better, like they're two or four times as good. And I was blown away by that because, you, you know, you didn't realise it was that exponential. And I'm thinking right now in my head of at least five different roles in my companies where we've had someone who was in the role that maybe either got bored or disillusioned or kind of they weren't really a right culture fit. And maybe we kept them a bit long and eventually they moved on. And then we got someone new in. And once once we'd onboarded them and improved our systems and processes of training them and, and they bought into the culture, so maybe three to six months in, not only had they fixed the problems, they'd found problems that we didn't know were there. They'd fixed those. And they'd really help to scale that department or that role. So I would much rather now pay a good salary to get the best and know that I'm probably getting double or quadruple the output and the efficacy and the efficiency. So that's something to think about there. Now, maybe in really pure sales-led roles, you can pay lower basic, but not limit the upside on the commission and pay good commissions. But then in operational, administrative or tactical roles, maybe you could go and pay a a really good salary. So there's some things to think about there.
So we covered in the last version, part one of hiring and recruiting legends, we covered your employment contract, which has your job description at the top. Then it has your key result areas, the three to seven things that are the key areas that that team member must fulfill just to hold their job. You know, like a, it's like a, 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 an area to focus that's almost a link to the minimum standards of performance. Even before someone joins your organization, you want to have created a clear culture. And the culture of your organization is what makes it unique. It's the identity of it, the vision, the values, the environment, the togetherness. And many small business owners will unconsciously have a culture, but they wouldn't be able to articulate what that is and how that's different from their competitors and how that's different from the corporations or the conglomerates. And I believe that culture is one of the most important recruitment strategies, even though it's not a direct recruitment strategy. Because once you have a great culture, and let's use the example of Google, because that's quite a, a common one, people will want to leave their existing role and come and work for you. And they'll work for future prospects and they'll probably take a lower salary because they want to be part of a revolution. They want to be part of something that matters, that makes them feel important. So are you clear on your culture? And to create your culture, the first thing you want to be very clear on is your vision. What's your vision? Is your vision to create global financial freedom? Is your vision to help people invest for freedom, choice and profit? Is your vision to inspire greatness in everyone, which are some of our company visions? And the vision is the destination upon which your company will reach, even if it never reaches it. And in fact, it's, they're often too big for an organisation to ever reach. And it's something that inspires people, brings people together, knits them to fight for a cause and uh, makes them different to everyone else. And that for any incoming person, if they get a feel and a flavour for that, you know, they just sense that this culture is exciting and it's making a difference and it's changing the world, people will buy into that. Recruitment consultants will be able to sell that for you to people when they're trying to hire them. You'll be able to sell that to people to get them to leave their existing role. There was quite a famous incident where Steve Jobs was trying to sell in the CEO, I believe it was CEO of Pepsi, and he said, do you want to sell brown water your whole life or do you want to come and work for a company that's making a real difference? Now, I will create a future episode on the disruptive entrepreneur of culture because I think I could probably do a whole episode what you don't want is chaos, lack of mission, mishmash of different values when people come in because it'll create conflict. They won't be able to see where their career can go. They won't feel that they matter. They won't feel part of something special. And ultimately, to keep them there, you need to pay them a much higher salary to make up for that because salary trades off with other benefits. So if you are looking to reduce salaries, you want to outweigh it with an amazing culture. Now, Great cultures are often disruptive, especially when you're a startup and you're a small enterprise. It's risky for someone to come and work for a younger company. You know, you've got more security and more history in a bigger organization. So you've got to offset that risk with something more dynamic, more maybe they can create their own role in the future. Maybe they can get to a management level much quicker. Maybe you can build a team around them. You know, maybe they can head up a department that they couldn't head up in a bigger organization because it's too big and it would take them too long. 
So these are all the things that you're weighing up. But, you know, at the same time, I know some people can get really bogged down and think, oh, I don't know what my culture is. It's a really difficult thing to do. You know, have this empty brain. I don't think it's that difficult. Just start sketching out what you think the vision and mission of your company is. You know, what, what purpose does it serve over and above the products and services and widgets that you create? How are you making a difference? How are you changing the world? What are you doing for people? And just start playing with that. And then as you get members of your team, so maybe as you get a PA and an MD, start asking them what are their thoughts on what makes you different and unique? And what do you do that's bigger and more important than the products and services that you create? Then ask your customers and clients, some of your best, most loyal customers, what do they think about it? Uh, what we did when we created a culture at our organizations is we thought about how we wanted to be different. We thought about how we wanted to serve other people. And then we brought the team together and we asked them what they thought. And we brainstormed in various team meetings, catchphrases. We brainstormed just ways we were unique. We, we brainstormed, you know, how we thought we served people and what we thought we gave them that superseded the material items of our products and services. And it's amazing that just with a little bit of brainstorming and a crowdsourced sort of idea factory, if you like, can create something really quite special because your culture is the advert for your business. And then from your vision is your values. So maybe it's progressive, innovative and personal like one of our companies is. What are your distinctive values that makes you different from everyone else, that makes you you? Now, of course, your values don't have to be progressive, innovative and personal. They don't have to be disruptive or contrarian. They need to be what they are, and they should be a culmination of the values of you as the founder, the values that your customers and clients and, you know, the buyers of your products and services really appreciate and want, and what make them come to you over and above, what going to your competitors, maybe what makes them pay more for your products and services than your competitors. So it's got to be almost like a hybrid, I believe anyway, of... A reflection of you, but a reflection of what your market wants. Now, some people say your culture should, your values and your culture should be purely based on who you are, because the company is a reflection and a manifestation of the founder. I don't believe that, because if who you are is not what your customers want or like, or respond to, or buy from, then you're just trying to force your market to buy something or be something that they don't want or have. So you want to kind of try and merge those if you can. So we did the same thing in our organisation. We came up with maybe 15 or 20 values that we thought maybe represent who we are and how we're a bit different. And then we brainstormed it with our team and then we probably ended up having 40 or 50 words. And yeah, that was a bit overwhelming, but that's a good start, isn't it? Because it's better to have too many than too few. Then we went by a process of elimination. So we took out all the generic ones, you know, like passionate or unique, you know, they're generic, they're bland. We took those out. We took out ones that we didn't really reflected who we are. We took out the duplicates because often there's words that maybe are the same, maybe progressive and disruptive. And that may, you know, you know, maybe they're a bit too similar. So maybe one word would do or maybe there's a word that encapsulated three. So we took them out and we're probably left with eight now. And then we go back to the team and we say, hey, look, we've got eight here, but we're really looking for between three and six. So what can we drop? What are we not? And you know, we were trying to be quite cutthroat with that. We got down to progressive, innovative, personal, prepared. We held them for about a year. We realised that progressive and prepared and innovative and prepared are almost the antithesis of each other. And you know, we never really were prepared. We're, we're, we're much more ready, fire, aim. 
And actually, one of our strengths is that we're not overprepared. We're flexible. We can pivot. We can iterate. So we actually dropped that. And now we have three core values. So at one of our companies, Progressive Property, it's invest for freedom, choice and profit is the vision. And Progressive, innovative and personal are the, the brand values. And now we have a culture. So if anyone wants safe, secure and risk free, we're the wrong company. And we can be honest with the person that we're interviewing. And as soon as we see that in them, we realise there won't be a culture fit. If people want growth, innovation, disruption, we know they're a great culture fit. So it really helps the advertising of our company to recruitment consultants and you know, people we're trying to hire. It really helps with recruitment. It helps when you then pass on the recruitment to your team or your HR department because they're very clear on who's right for the company and who's not right for the company. So that moves us on to the next thing, which helps you be clear on exactly the type of person you want. You want someone who's a culture fit. It's very important. If they are not a culture fit, no matter how skilled, talented or experienced they are, in the end, they're going to hate working for you. Now, you don't necessarily want uh, an organisation of people who have the same values, but you want them to at least buy into the culture. And then cascading down from that is, what do you want that person to do? Are you hiring on attitude or aptitude? Because I believe that, you know, whilst there is this panacea of let's have someone who's got an amazing attitude and they've got great skills, talents and experience, normally you get one or the other. Because if someone's got a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge, they've been in the career or the industry a long time, they're not necessarily going to wear your branded swag. You know, they're not necessarily going to go and tell all their friends and family to come and work for you and, you know, and be your greatest advocate and work 80 hours a week and wear, 80 hours a week and wear your sort of crew uh, T-shirts and help at all of your events, etc., They're going to use their knowledge and experience as their value. They don't want to be micromanaged. They want to be left to do their own thing. Maybe they've got a little bit of an ego. You know, they they need to be managed in a different way and and kind of micromanaging them and constantly teaching and training them and constantly instilling the brand values in them. You know, that's probably going to be futile work. And you've got to give them a bit more freedom, a bit more autonomy. You've probably got to give them a bit of a higher title. Maybe you... You know, you've got to not measure them on hours worked and how hard they work and how much they help and measure them more on output and results. And then the opposite of that is hiring on attitude, which is someone who's, the, who's raw, who's not the finished article. Maybe you're hiring them on future ability. You know, you're taking a bit of, punt on, a bit of a punt on them. You know, you feel that maybe they aren't yet as experienced in this role, but you're pretty sure because they have a great attitude that they can grow into the role, that they can learn the role, that they, they really buy into the culture and values and they love it and they're, they're your biggest raving fans and, and the biggest advocates for your culture. Now, if you hear a lot of modern talk on recruitment, what you generally find is people say, I always hire on attitude and, you know, I, I, I can mould someone into the person I want them to be if they've got the right attitude. I personally disagree with that. I don't think it's an extreme. If you hire all on attitude, you might have a team of 50 nodding dogs who are really excited to do what you want, but there's no skills yet. And therefore, it's going to put a massive strain on your research, sorry, on your training and development, on you having to micromanage them and train them all the time. And you're not going to have enough skills. You're not going to have enough experience. But if you hire all on aptitude, skills, experience. Maybe you haven't got enough evangelists. Maybe you haven't got that kind of raw, passionate culture that you want. So I think it's role dependent. And I think you want a good mix. 
Because what you don't want in your organisation is a, a group of mini-me's. You don't want a load of mini-you's. Now, your ego wants that. So if you're a startup entrepreneur, you want to be surrounded by startup entrepreneurs who work 80 hours, 80 hours a week, you know, who sleep in the office, who uh, have this kind of disruptive, chaotic, creative mindset, if that's you, by the way. Uh, and if you're a firm of solicitors and accountants, sorry to stereotype, but maybe you want, you know, people who have been well-trained, well-educated, gone to the right schools, got the right letters after their name and got the right qualifications. You actually want a variety because, you know, for example, with a, an, an English football team, a, sco- a soccer team, you don't want 11 goalies and you don't want 11 strikers. It's just the worst thing. You need a variety. So you need a variety of aptitude and attitude, skills, experience in, in the exact market that you've been in, but also maybe someone who's raw, but you know he loves your culture. A mix of men and women. What you'll find in an organisation, if there's too many men, then it can be a bit fueled by the sort of the male ego and it can get a bit competitive. If you have too many women, then you can get a little bit chatty and gossipy. And hey, I'm not going to continue those stereotypes because I don't want to get complained by men or women. But, but I've seen that in our organisation. If we've waited too many men or waited too many women, the culture changes. Waited too many experienced, waited too many attitude. So you want a variety. You want a variety of skill sets. You want a variety of personality types. So do you do any personality profiling? Do you know DISC? Do you know Myers-Briggs? Do you know Wealth Dynamics? Do you know the personality profile of the role and the personality profile match of the person that's coming in? Because if you have a techie role and you've got someone who's very high dominance on the DISC or very star creator on the Wealth Dynamics profile, it's just not going to work. You've got the, the, the totally the wrong fit. And a bit of personality profiling at second interview stage or, you know, not, not with every single person that applies for the job, but someone who's getting near to having the role, that can really help make sure that there's a, the right fit for the role. So that means clarity of what kind of person you want for the role and then clarity of what kind of person you're getting for the role. Rolling recruitment. Now, in what we use, there's two schools of thought when it comes to recruitment policy. Recruitment policy number one is wait until you're absolutely desperate. Wait till you really do need help. Things are almost breaking and then hire someone because what it does is it keeps the overhead low and it means you don't have a wastage. And, you you know, the big corporates, they often have a lot of wastage where there's people that are, that's hiding between the organisational chart, between levels where they're getting by on minimum, running on idle, but they, they, they can kind of just do enough to look like they're busy, play the corporate game, uh, and, you know, sort of survive in that world. But, you know, when you're lean and when you're a startup, you absolutely don't want any wastage. But then the other school of thought is if you wait until you're at capacity and almost breaking to hire, and then it takes three to six months to find the right person, and then it's the right person isn't the right person. So then they work for three to six months and then they leave or you fire them and then you bring the next person in and then maybe that repeats two or three times. You could be a year before you've got the right person and then you've got to onboard them properly and then you've got to train them so you could be between you're lucky if six months the right person is embedded in could be up to 18 months before the right person is embedded in and you know knows the role and happy and comfortable and brought into the culture so we've had both we've had the wait until it's broke and then we've had the rolling recruitment policy where we get people in maybe before we need them and I much very much prefer the rolling recruitment policy now, here's the thing. Even when you have a rolling recruitment policy, you, you often don't have your roles filled anyway. 
And just as you think you've got enough people in your department, or maybe one too many, which is good, someone will leave or something will change. So very rarely are you fully hired up, even if you have a policy of you're always recruiting. The benefit of having a rolling recruitment policy is you can tell your team you've got a rolling recruitment policy, which basically means you're always looking for great talent, which means you can tell them to always keep their eye out for great talent, which means when one of your team members finds a job out of yours or finds out that you're hiring for that, that role, they don't think you're you know, trying to sort of manage them out or their role is in jeopardy because you've made it clear that you're always looking for great talent. You should always make it clear that you'll retain great talent, whether you move them upwards or sideways or create a new role for them. You should encourage them to look to forge the new role that they want and almost force you to create a department around them or a team around them. Steve Jobs was famous for doing that at Apple. He would silo great talent into sort of breakaway teams for breakaway projects. And if you package and sell that to your team, that that's what you'll always do and you'll always retain great talent, which you'd want to do anyway, even if it means you have to put them in a different role. Maybe they're talent, but not in the role that they're in. Then you don't get the fallback because when we did this in the early days, we just used to get a lot of fear and a lot of sort of complaints and worries from our team that are we trying to manage them out? Are we hiring for their role? And we're going to get rid of them. So market and advertise your rolling recruitment policy to the headhunters, to the recruitment consultants on, the, on whatever websites that you know, you're advertising to your team, because often your team are the best adverts for recruiting for you. So when each individual team member has clear vision and clear values of the company, and then you give them clear vision and values of the role, you have an engaged, bought-in team member who always feels like they can grow. So right up there with salary is career progression and also feeling valued. So if you think, okay, you can actually reduce the salary you pay by making them feel really valued and important and giving them a clear vision of progression, both in terms of their role and also in terms of their own personal development. There's the saying, isn't there, by Ray Kroc, if you're green, you grow, you're ripe, you're rot. So if those are the three main things... Be really strong on the other two, and therefore you'll probably save yourself uh, maybe 10 or 15% on the salary. Apparently, feeling valued in an organization is worth 17% of their salary, according to studies. So you can get away with paying 17% less if your team member feels really valued. So I'm not saying drop their salary by 17% and blow smoke up their ass, but, but it's just a really interesting to statistic to know that feeling valued is, is worth a lot of money. So if a team member feels like they can't grow, they can't progress in terms of their own personal development and knowledge of their role and skills, and also in your organisation, they'll start looking for another job, or many of them will. There aren't many people that want to stay in the same role for 5, 10 or 20 years. So the benefit, actually, of working with a big corporation over and above your disruptive enterprise is that's very clear. That hierarchical organizational chart is clear. You know, you get you get to this role and then in three years you get to this role and five years you get to this role and 10 years you get to buy into the company and then 15 years you're a partner. The drawback of that is it's very fixed. You probably can't accelerate it quick enough and get there quick enough. So your big sell is they could create their own role. They could have a break off team. Whilst they may not be a big structure yet because it's a small lean operation, you will back them and you will help create the new roles for them in the future. Now, you need to keep selling that and you need to keep getting them to see that because often they can't see it if it doesn't exist.
So when you have your monthly performance management meetings and one-to-ones with them, ask them how their career is developing. Uh, By the way, I'm going to do sort of performance management uh, one-to-ones and uh, culture in another podcast. I'll teach you about all the things that you should say in that one-to-one to to how to keep them engaged. But for now, no, if you keep selling them the vision of where they could go. For example, if you have a designer, sell them that, that there could be a design department that they head up and then there could be a breakaway design company. We have that at Progressive. We were a property training business. And then when we had enough books and CDs and products, we almost now have a digital agency. We have a design agency, which was one designer, then another designer. Then we have a a videographer and then we have a video team. And then we almost have a Progressive design agency that could get external clients. And that all started from one designer. So sell that vision in the future and you'll keep them engaged and you'll keep them there longer. Discover the values of every single member of your team. I think this is quite possibly the single most important thing you can do to keep team members engaged, to have great rapport with them, to have them feel valued, and to be able to know what to give them in terms of a package, in terms of their role and their progression. So I used to naively think that everyone was salary-based, i.e. you could incentivize them with money, and that would be their most important value. Money is actually not most people's most important value. And only a small percentage of your workforce will be purely focused on and driven by money. Now, of course, there are some that are, and good salaries and good commissions, that will keep them happy. But of course, they'll need more and more and more and more and more and more and more of that. So maybe they may not stay. And the drawback of them having money as their highest value is as soon as they get a better offer, they'll be off and there'll be no loyalty. So actually, it's not always best to hire based on that. But uh, and it shouldn't be an assumption that that is the be all and end all of a role. Now, the most important stage of you discovering the values of your team member is in the interview. Because if they're in the team and you don't know their values and their values are are not aligned with your culture values, then you've made a bad hire and you may end up losing them. And by the way, a bad hire can cost up to £24,000 in lost revenue, in damage to your business, in double recruitment fees because you paid recruitment fees for the the, the bad team member and then you got to pay recruitment fees for the new team member. And it was James Kahn who who gave me that figure. So up to twenty four grand in one role for a bad hire. So it's well worth getting these things right up front. So the values of an individual, of you, of me, of anyone, it's just simply the things that are most important to us in our life. Now, I ask two questions when it comes to discovering values. Question number one is I want to know their main life values. You know, what's most important to them in their life? And then question number two is I want to know what's most important to them in their role. Now, we have an HR department in our companies and every three to six months we do a survey across our team and we ask our team members values and a couple of people don't want to share them, but virtually everyone else does. They're all very different. They're all very unique to the individual and it's very insightful. So if someone says health, family and well-being, you know that maybe a bit of time off or maybe sort of vouchers to some kind of spa or, or maybe free, really good, healthy food at the organisation is going to meet their values. And they're going to love that and love about working with you that. But if you offered them a 5% salary raise and you didn't offer them those things, they'd be less happy and they wouldn't work harder and longer for, for more money if those values were getting negated or resisted. Whereas if someone says money, career and progression, you know, you need to give them a good package with 
maybe no limit on the upside of what they can earn. And also you need to give them the next role in two years, the next role in two years, the next role in two years. And then when you ask them what's the most important thing to them in their career, it might be autonomy, freedom and respect. But it might be money, career progression, diversification. It might be not being micromanaged, happiness, contentment. It might be the amount of hours that they work. Now, I used to think that if people only want to work a nine to five, they're in the wrong place. But actually, if they've got a good culture fit, that can be good because they're steady and, you know, they don't have sick days. The people who are often just work the nine to five, they don't have the sick days. They don't have the sort of the ups and downs, the peaks and troughs. But the people who aren't the nine to fivers, they'll often give you more over and above, but they can burn themselves out. So again, you don't want uh, stereotypes. You want a bit of a mix depending on the role, depending on, depending on the existing culture you've got and the existing people you've got in the team. So when you discover the values before someone, if, before someone you hire and then when you've hired them, you'll know how to motivate them, inspire them, keep them engaged. You'll know when they're disengaged. You'll know how to, li- how to lift them back up. Ultimately, what you'll be able to do is hire them for longer. It'll be lower recruitment costs. You'll get more out of them. You'll have less staff turnover. So I hope you've enjoyed Recruiting and Hiring Legends Part 2. I'm going to do a Recruiting and Hiring Legends Part 3 because there's still more. This is one of the most important things in scaling and leveraging your organisation, making more money but working less. So on Part 3, I'm going to discuss more about values, how to incentivise, reward and guide individuals along the vision, knowing their values, how much you should be focused on team versus focused on your customers and who are more, most important, your team and your customers, how to crowdsource all of your new products and services through your team, how to create a, an advert, how to interview, how to find talent. I may look at in, interviewing our head of HR, paying referrals, where to recruit from and the pluses and minuses of all of that, the interview process, and so on and so on. So I really look forward to part three. I hope you've enjoyed The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything.